Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Joining me today is Aubrey Basdeo, Head of Canadian Fixed Income at Guardian Capital LP. Aubrey, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. It's It's been such a dramatic period. I'm, I'm very excited about our conversation today because uh, in light of all that's happening and of course, getting your take on all, all that's happening in the economy, rates, the bond market and your fixed income strategy. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, after just over the course of the weekend in preparation for, for our conversation today, I was, uh, you know, I was taken aback by all that was happening. And I thought oh, it couldn't be the most perfect time to have this conversation with Aubrey. Um, you know, he's going to know, he's going to have a real take on it from, from uh, you know, the bond market uh, perspective. And um, so Silicon Valley Bank, <laughs> I mean, and it's not no, just Silicon, so it's not just Silicon Valley Bank, it's Signature Bank, it's correct. Silvergate. I mean, three, three, three breakages, you know, uh, in the context of the Fed breaking things with its, with its rate hikes this past year. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? Um, well, I think there, there are a few commonalities here across these three. Um, they, the one thing that really sticks out is um, the deposit base was very concentrated for all three of these institutions, and um, and it was also very not just concentrated, but you know the customers there had um, very large, uh, significant deposits um, to a large extent. So when um, you're faced with um, one of those customers moving. Their deposits uh, are cashing it out and doing whatever they would do with it. Then you have to raise, you have to sell assets in order to provide the cash. Um, and that seemed to be the problem there. Um, and in Silicon Valley, Valley Bank, um, the customer base was largely VCs. But the other part of this for the other two banks were that they were they were they were um, bankers for the crypto folks. Right. Yeah. Um, who, who can be very flighty. And so that seems to be uh, one common feature here um, with all of these. And clearly the, the risk, once this started to play out, the risk is that it could end up being some, lend itself to systemic risk across the system. So we've had to act uh, pretty quickly here. Yeah, I... I uh... I'm I'm curious to find out. Like, uh, we're going to talk about it. I, th I think we're going to we're going to get to it, and um, but it's obviously going to change the outcome of the Fed meetings and policy. Uh, it's going to tilt things in the opposite direction, I'm guessing. And I'm going to let you talk about that when we get to it. But um, so quite a weekend, uh, <laughs> lots to talk about. Before we get started, Aubrey, I'd like to introduce you, even though I suspect most advisors know who you are. But for those of you who don't know Aubrey, Aubrey is an absolute veteran, is one of the pioneers of modern fixed income management, having had long and fruitful tenures, most recently 14 years at BlackRock, which is today the world's largest asset manager as managing director of fixed income strategy which includes also his time as principal portfolio manager at BGI, Barclays iShares, which was subsequently acquired by BlackRock. And prior to that, Aubrey was portfolio manager and head of the macro rates relative value fixed income group at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. What you may not know is that the groundbreaking work that Aubrey and his team did at BGI at iShares eventually became part of the bedrock of what BlackRock does today in fixed income. Aubrey is known for being a trailblazer in the very complex world of modern fixed income management. And how appropriate it is that he joined Guardian Capital LP, considering Guardian's own trailblazing across the Canadian and global financial landscape. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Did I miss anything, Aubrey? Uh, no, I think that, that, that's a pretty good <laughs> summary of it, yeah. 
Good, good. So, so Aubrey, um, before we get to our, your, your take, before we get to your take on fixed income and bond markets, tell us about your time at OTPP and subsequently your time at BGI, uh, pre and post the BlackRock acquisition. What was that like? Uh, a lot of learning. Um, you know, when I joined Ontario Teachers, uh, I was coming from the sell side of the business to the buy side of the business. Um, so a different mentality where, you know, on the sell side of the business, it's minute by minute reaction to um, when you get to a plan like Ontario Teachers, you're very much focused on thinking longer term, um, how you're managing the assets relative to the objective of providing, uh, meeting the obligations of, uh, of the plan uh, for its stakeholders. Um, and that, you know, involves thinking more broadly about um, risks, um, how you manage those risks, et cetera. Um, so foundationally from uh, BGI, uh, sorry, from uh, Ontario Teachers, um, it was broadening out my experience uh, across global markets from when I was on the sell side, very much focused on local, the local Canadian market. Um, so I enriched myself, my experience, and you know, uh, built up my uh, toolkit, so to speak, uh, when looking at global markets, which was the big focus for me at, um, at Teachers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then when um, uh, I moved on to BGI, uh, although my role there was to ahead of the Canadian portion of BGI's business globally, um, it, the plan was to deliver um, a global perspective to Canadian investors. So bringing uh, global solutions or global returns back to Canada um, because you know, Canada is a very, very small portion of the total fixed income, the global fixed income markets. Right. Um, and the bulk of the opportunity set really resides outside of um, Canada, given, you know, 97% of markets are away from us. So again, that was um, uh, additional uh, access to um, other markets, understanding how um, other markets work relative to Canada, um, being able to apply a new set of tools, uh, you know, given that BGI was, um, you know, global in its footprint and starting to do really innovative stuff um, in order to, you know, in part borrowing from what it was already doing in the equity side and trying to uh, look at fixed income markets in the same way. So what was the, um, I mean, there was some cultural differences between BGI and BlackRock. So when BlackRock acquired BGI, what, you know, what, what, how would you define those differences? Yep. Yeah, we, we thought of it like, so at BGI, our, our, our philosophy was, uh, looking at markets, um, using, um, what we call a scientific approach to analyze markets, meaning that we try to be very systematic in our approach in, uh, identifying opportunities. And one of the things that we felt very strongly about was, um, any individual that was looking at markets would be swamped by the amount of data that they would need to look at uh, first uh, because, you know, it's for you to do a really good job, you need to assemble a lot of data and be able to uh, make sense of that data. So the best thing to do then is to look at it from the perspective of if you can um, build models around being able to analyze this data in a systematic manner, um, you could uh, source yourself an advantage uh, in doing so. The other um, point about that that we felt also very strongly about was any individual looking at information would be looking at it with, inherent, with some inherent cognitive biases. So it's always difficult to remove those biases given, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're human beings, we're built a certain way, that's what's going to happen. And there's not necessarily to say there's something wrong with that, but more, more often than not, um, these cognitive biases, because, you know, they're 
they're subconscious. You don't know that you're applying them, that it sometimes will lead you to the, the wrong conclusion. So we felt that we'll let the models be able to sift the data out, uh, produce an outcome, and then the portfolio manager can look at that outcome and try and make sense of it. Does this make sense? Is at the end of the day what we're trying to say right. to ourselves. And then we would say, okay, yes. Um, and recognizing as well that when you build models, you know, sometimes uh, there are going to be certain exogenous things that it doesn't understand, such as, you know, a bank run, for example. So you have to <laughs> look at the output and, okay, now I need to incorporate this because the model can't quite understand what that means, right? So that's, that's the approach we take. Now, BlackRock was more of a... Um, Fundamental. They took a more fundamental approach to uh, how they uh, make decisions about investments. Uh, so we had, on the one hand, the scientific approach, and then we had this fundamental approach. And what we felt was um, we could learn from each other. So we didn't want to say to one another, "Okay, you got to use my way of doing it, uh, and we will abandon what you've been doing." Right. So yeah, uh, Larry Fink, to his credit, said look, um, there's a value proposition on both of those. And to the extent that we can somehow marry those two things and take the sort of the best of both worlds, uh, then the firm would be uh, better for it. And so we're allowed to coexist and exchange information with each other. And, and so, you know, in the end, uh, that proved to be the right decision. Very interesting. And I, I mean, I know uh, there's a question I wanted to ask you about um, technology, but I'm guessing that has a lot to do with what you're doing at Guardian Capital now, and that's bringing the the technolo the technological edge to the your systematic investing uh, strategy um, with you from your yeah. like from your experience at BlackRock. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the one of the changes we noted, or the evolution in the marketplace, is that we're moving from. One in which there is a vacuum of data to now the market's recognizing or investors recognizing that they really need data to make uh, decisions about where they choose to invest. Um, now, in the U.S. and uh, in Europe as well, there's an abundance of information and that information is available to, uh, to participants. So you can use that information. There's a lot of it. Um, and you can use that information, as I said, to make, help, help make your decisions. Um, Canada is gradually moving to increase transparency because it serves investors best that way, but it also helps the lower transaction costs. The more transparency you have, more information uh, you'll have at your disposal, and you'll, you know, you're just going to be better off as a result. Um, and so, We've been pushing towards having more transparency, so moving to electronic trading in which information is going to be uh, readily available um, gives us uh, the same set of tools that we've applied in um, non-domestic you know, non markets. And so I think we're just going to be better off as a result uh, of that. Yeah, I'm curious because you mentioned it just a moment ago, which was that you know, when something like a, a dislocation happens, like this weekend's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and 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 it's uh, you know the ramifications of that, like how it how it trickles through the market in terms of sentiment. We saw, like for example, today, uh, big swings in the ten-year, in the two-year. Um, you know, and given that the Fed uh, reacts to the two-year, tends to focus on the two-year Treasuries. How do you, if you're using, if you're using a systematic model, how do you take these, these events? How do you incorporate that into your strategy when it happens? Because well, it, it's, it's ad hoc, right? It's not, yeah, it's yeah. not part of the regular flow of data or regular flow of markets. It's a disruption. Exactly. Yep. And so. So you have a jump to, uh, you have a, like an event risk and markets kind of, uh, reprice it in a jump function way. Um, and so what you're looking for now, all right, historically, when I've seen something like this, is there a pattern that I can discern? And you're trying to marry that up to what you see today. So, for example, 2008 might come to mind in terms of bank failures, what the markets did, what was the reaction function from the Fed? How do I interpret that, right? So you're quickly 
and and this is the ability of having um, technology in play. You're quickly trying to, or you you should be able to quickly assess uh, that information in some context that will not necessarily give you the answer, but help help you be able to decipher. Okay, what are the probability outcomes here? Right, I can assign various probabilities. Right to okay, the Fed next week may pause or the Fed may go by 25 or the Fed may go by 50. So you've got a range of outcomes that you're going to have to assign a set of probabilities. So the market is now suggesting that the Fed is likely uh, on holders. I think there's an even odds uh, at this point in terms of whether they'll go or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we still have data this week, CPI, PPI, retail sales, um, that could will will also add more volatility to those probability outcomes as well, but the key point here is that if you've got data, you can you can try and make sense of it and assign you know and in, make an informed decision. In other words, here as opposed to um, trying to sort of reflect back in your mind what's been happening how do i you know your your own experience and trying to sort of decipher what that is we'd prefer as i said to be able to use as uh, as many tools as we can in order to make a better informed decision and and the edge as you you suggested is having uh, technology assist us with uh, coming up with a with a better uh, decision right so so you 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 would you're, you would be using the systematic approach that you've built in order to sort of neutralize any bias so that, Correct. so that they're not, there isn't any, uh, you know, you're not, you're not having a disproportionate reaction in any direction you're just taking the information as it comes and, and, and then acting on it, but not in an emotional way, not, not, not. Right, I, I think that, that that's a really good way of, of you want to remove the emotions out of uh, right. the decision making process, and just be informed by what the data is telling you. Um, so you're looking at the change in the shape of the yield curve. Um, how does this relate to other historical precedents that that might look uh, that you might look to as an example of um, a similar event? the kinds of uh, risks uh, that you could be exposed to by making one decision or another, et cetera. Um, and, and I think that's for us is, is very important for us to be able to assess, you know, the range of outcomes and how do we assign probabilities to those? And, and that's much better done uh, by using technology to, to derive those outcomes. You also have, you know, you have to understand like Canada is, there's no run in a bank here. Um, but we're obviously being sideswiped by global events. Um, right, right. Canadian financial institutions are being assessed in sort of a similar way that, um, you know, regu- a, reg- a more harsher regulatory regime might ensue from here. What does that mean for for banks' earnings, uh, risk premium associated with uh, bank debt, et cetera? Um, so you can you, you can see how you need need to borrow information from other markets in order to be able to you know assess how things might unfold here uh, in a in a domestic uh, in domestic markets. Yeah, I, I I think this this event this weekend certainly makes a lot of room for uh, some fear that it's making it's it's has the the risk of making even more room for moral hazard. Because if, if everybody, if everybody thinks that, uh, the central bank is going to step in and, and, you know, make everybody whole, uh, or at least the depositors, then that leaves the bank or banks themselves to be able to take even more risk down the road. Maybe not, maybe not right now, but down, you know, down the road, it has knock on, I mean, all these things have these knock on effects, right? So, so you just, uh. You know, I think, yeah, so there there are a number of things here that services immediately. One is, you know, because of the implied Fed put looks like it's back in, mm-hmm. uh, given uh, their assurances to uh, depositors. And, you know, in addition to the other step that they've taken about providing liquidity to institutions who find themselves uh, 
in need of being able to use an emergency facility in order to meet um, deposit demands. Um, so because well, now now everyone's you know everyone's sitting there wondering like how much how, you know how much losses are you hiding in your balance sheet? Yeah, right? the market the market though has a good way of slipping that out, Pierre. Because I, I think yeah. you know we've all seen what has happened to uh, regional banks, right? They're getting this. There's the stocks are getting drilled. Yeah, and and so there's clearly they're getting their assets handed to them. <laughs> you can bring anyway. that up you too. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it would while on the, you know I think it would be a naive statement to say um, that you could go back to oh yeah this is back to where we were you know maybe a decade ago that you know the Fed's going to protect us we can go out and do things. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I would, I would say it would be very difficult for them because I think it w- you would have to assume that uh, the regulators would now look to reinforce, put put stop gaps in place. In other words, to ensure that um, the issues that surfaced here more recently are are going to be avoided, or they'll be able to avoid those uh, now going forward. Now, you know, you're plugging one hole. Is there another hole that might? Yeah. You know, pop up, and, well, and that's to me. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, that to me is uh, you know one of the considerations because you know we, we were finding um, uh, this issue about as I highlighted earlier the commonality around these three institutions uh, is a concentrated uh, deposit base. Uh, the other is would be a very um, major issue was risk management practices at these three institutions. It doesn't seem to have um, been something that's very rigorous uh, given, you know, this mismatch in their um, funding. So they had very short deposits that are borrowing short, lending long, and that gap seemed to be very wide. Um, And, you know, they're could argue maybe they were caught offside by how aggressive the Fed was in raising interest rates um, and didn't give them enough time to sort of react. But the Fed was so transparent in what it was doing. I, I can't buy that either. Uh, so I think risk management well, is something. Yeah, you, you've, got, you've got on one hand, you've got the Fed being blamed because at the end of 20, at the end of 21, they were saying they they didn't foresee or at the end of, at the end of 21, they didn't foresee raising rates for quite some time they were still in that transitory uh model and right. uh, and then and then so some folks are saying well you know then you know these treasurers didn't you know they took it at face value and and went ahead with their plans to invest in in you know longer duration exactly and and then but the counter argument to that is you know when you saw that rates were rising throughout the year and that inflation wasn't wasn't slowing down and neither was the Fed or neither were central banks anywhere um, where this is happening, including Canada. You, you saw the rate hikes coming. You saw the, you know, the duration part of your, you know, the longer duration part of your portfolio being impacted. Why was nothing done even at that time or six months ago, you know, or May or, you know, the summer. So, so that's where, you know, there's a suggestion of, of, of moral hazard taking place, um, you know, which could, could easily be relabeled as malfeasance, right? That that neg- or negligence, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't and, know. And what, but what was well, I think critically, what was the incentive system for for um, the executives who are running these institutions to not do the right thing? Right. So. Um, yeah, that that all remains to be seen, and uh, by the sounds of it, there's going to be some pretty lengthy investigation into all of this. So. Yeah, and one of the horrible ironies by this is that um, um, Barney Frank uh, was one of the um, board members for um, Signature Bank, and <laughs> obviously he's uh, one of the architects of Dodd-Frank uh, post, uh, you know, the GFC. Um, so that, that highlights for me something that... Um, gets to the other point that I want to make about the, one of the commonalities here is that where was the regulator in all of this? Like, where was the San Francisco Fed overseeing SVB? Why were they not um, looking at this funding mismatch, knowing that the Fed 
at one part of the organization was raising interest rates and the regulating side need to have been completely aware that, okay, here's a potential risk in, in the system that they need to be very vigilant and monitoring. Well, even Why the auditors we- missed it. You know, KPMG gave gave SVB a clean bill of health. I think what, like a a few weeks ago. So so you know when you have the auditors signing off on it and the regulator doesn't see it and and you know what it it takes for it takes you know rumors and depositors deciding to yank their funds out very quickly, like forty two billion dollars in on Friday or Thursday or Friday. Yeah, forty-two billion dollars at once is unheard of, and and you know like the reserve ratios at the banks just can't support that kind of withdrawal either, right? When you when you don't have any any uh, you know contingencies in place for that kind of uh, that kind of anyway, uh, we we're not here to get into the weeds about SVB, but what we are, what I do want to get into with you is now what are the the repercussions? We we talk you know like there's a probability now that the Fed. Uh, like you know, Bank of Canada already already paused right last week. Right, that was a very right. that was a that was a big deal. Um, you know, some uh, I think it was a Schwab commentary called it trail. You know, is that a trailblazing move? Right, and and uh, you know, should the Fed be paying attention to that too? Like, if if you know, Tiff Macklem decides it's time to pause, we don't want to break our economy. By, by just continuing down this road blindly until something does break. Um, and, the, and then it, it's, it's uncanny because the, break re, the, you know, the breakage that, that the Bank of Canada was afraid of, well, it's happened, right? No, no exactly, yeah. Um, so, so now what are the chances? Like you did mention the chances of a pause, but if there's more breakage to come or, or more cracks are revealed in the, in, you know, in the armor, uh, what, what does that mean for, I mean, it's not good. None of it's good. I'm not, there's, there's certainly no, I mean, right. I don't so, think there's, there's no joy in talking about it. It's just fascinating that it's happening. It's, it's a cause benefit analysis that, uh, yeah. that, that I think, um, has to, uh, try and figure out here. Um, so there, there are two very distinct things here. They could argue, and still, so on next Wednesday they could they could hike um, by the twenty five basis points. Let's say at a minimum that they had been articulating that you know they still need to get to a higher terminal rate uh, than the market was anticipating, and in order to fulfill their mandate of you know uh, inflation at two and full employment. So they're very focused on the inflation side of the equation. So they could go ahead, very clear what they're doing on that side of it. And at the same time, be very clear about, you know, how they're handling this potential issue of trying to mitigate bank runs on, on regional institutions. Now, in theory, that could work. In practice, trying to convince, you know, investors or the populace at large that you've got this under control and all of this, you know, if I can isolate these two things uh, independently um, and I can act because I've got tools on one side and tools on the other side, appropriate tools to handle each one of those uh, um, objectives, then I'm good to go, right? So you can you can do that. I, I don't believe that's how markets, markets will work. Uh, and so that's why they have to think very carefully about the cost and benefit of doing what they're trying, what they're trying to achieve, which up until now was, you know, getting inflation under control. So, could you argue that what is going to happen here likely will be a natural tightening of um, standards or financial conditions yeah. in the U.S. economy? So, in fact, you've now seen that will play out and you can achieve, you'll achieve your objective without having to do anything more. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, if you just listen to the tech people talking today, you know, like it's going to become even harder for, for, you know, venture capitalists and tech companies to raise money. Absolutely. But, I think, sorry, I think definitely I would expect that, um, at least for the next six months to a year yeah. that 
there's be a lot more caution about you know allocating capital to VCs uh, at this point because you know you'd want to see how the dust settles at least before you you make any uh, additional. Um, and now, if the regional banks, like you know, in in the you know the wider scope of this situation, are are also facing similar dilemmas with their, uh, you know, their reserves available for sale, held to maturity reserves, uh, you know, if they're facing scrutiny and they're facing regulation, that too will force them to increase their deposit rates and 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 right, yeah tighten their lending conditions as well, right? Exactly. So, so you, you know, I, I think that that's, that at least should uh, should be a court, sort of given a high probability outcome here. Um, uh, just a natural tightening would we, we should expect because, look, as an investor managing, uh, you know, portfolios for clients, I have to sit here and ask myself, okay, what's, the assessment I think about risk premia if I'm going to go and add risk to the portfolio. And I certainly wouldn't be thinking this is the end of it. It's bargain basement. I know I should run out there and buy stuff. I, I think I'm, I'm going to wait to see how things uh, manifest itself and then um, try and uh, decide when is the appropriate time. But uh, there's just going to be a lot of volatility in the near term. Uh, best to stay on the sidelines and at least pay attention to the risks that I have in the portfolio and monitor those carefully to see if there are any unintended risks that I have that I need to neutralize and the risks that I want to take advantage of, um, whether they're appropriately priced or not, um, you know, and take the appropriate actions uh, uh, in order to mitigate those. Um, the the thing about getting back to the, the tightening of lending standards um, the one, so we, we have a potential run in a bank. The Fed has said, okay, here I'm acting decisively. So Janet Yellen's come out and said, basically, not on my watch. Nothing's going to break here. So <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. And again, which we, we've said, you know, could uh, give a false impression about, oh, the Fed is there to bail you out anytime something bad happens. Um, so this issue of moral hazard comes into play. But I think what may happen that they have to consider, and this is what they're trying to get in front of, I think, is to the extent that folks are worried about their deposits at a financial institution, because, you know, JP Morgan is not in every single district uh, throughout the U.S. You keep your money under the mattress. If that is what's likely to happen to some extent, then they have to be worried about um, an acceleration towards a very sharp slowdown uh, in in the offing here somewhere, you know, in by the end of this year. And so that's, that's the, that's a big risk at the moment that they, they have to uh, keep assessing. So it comes back to the question about, you know, do I pause? Do I go by 25 mm-hmm. basis points? You know, that, that delicate balance uh, now is in play and um, just more volatility because of the potential outcomes is what we're going to be faced with. As head of Canadian fixed income at Guardian Capital, how are you approaching this? I, I, I'm, I, you know, is it is it safe to say it's too soon, or do you have a set of of you know? Are you looking at at the situation and and have you made decisions already or trying to make decisions about how to go forward, given the new? Because uh, it's not a it's not a binary situation, and and as you yeah. said, it's going to be volatile because those there's going to be the ongoing flow of of uh, data. With with this this boulder of of you know SVB and and the regional banks in the in the middle of the river and everything flowing around it, right? You're going to have this, like, how do you how do you navigate from here? What's what's the you know like what kind of um, what kind of strategy are you are you considering right now given given the you know these variables? Okay, so let me let me take a step back here um, and give you a sense of how, how we're looking at this. When you're when you're investing in the fixed income markets, you have to have a good sense of the macro backdrop. Um, and when I say a good sense, you know, everybody has their own interpretation of how things are, are likely to unfold. Um, we meet twice regularly, twice a week, um, the team does, and where we're updating ourselves on um, what are the factors that we're paying attention to and what's the 
probabilistic outcome from a macro perspective that we see. So broadly speaking, we're already, we're already thinking that there is a slowdown unfolding. When we look at leading indicators uh, in Canada and the U.S., that's what is in front of us. Right. Uh, coincident and, and lagging indicators such as employment um, and, and some of the um, soft uh, data sentiment and things like that are suggesting, particularly employment, are suggesting the economy is still healthy. Employment is a lagging indicator. CPI is a lagging indicator. Um, and so while we acknowledge that you know, there's, there, there's, there's still some economic momentum, long and variable lags to monetary policy suggest to us, and as evidence, as we, we're looking at some of the leading indicators, they're saying that things are slowing down. Right. Credit card balances are building up, et cetera. Um, so all of this points to us that there was going to be a slowdown absent this event risk that we saw uh, right. this past weekend. Add that to uh, what we are already sensing or seeing um, suggests to us that you know, it's going to be more pronounced. How much more pronounced is what we're going to have to monitor uh, going forward. So when we see that, you're beginning to think about your portfolio construction, about the opportunities set in front of you. What's the bank counter likely to do? Um, what's the Fed likely to do? Because you know, obviously, we're going to be we're somewhat tied to uh, right. their we're very tied to their economy. Um, this would suggest to us that if we were thinking about short duration exposure, we would be thinking about lengthening our duration uh, somewhat at this point. Um, if we were thinking that curve flatteners were still the way to be for now, we would be thinking about curve steepening as the way to go uh, from now. Right. Um, right. Now, clearly, the market went very steepener-ish today, um, and so you know we'll let the dust settle there. We were already positioned for a steepening bias anyway, because of, as I said, you know we were, we were anticipating this uh, slowdown, a, a turn in monetary policy, etc. It's just accelerated that now to some extent. In terms of um, risk premium itself, so uh, if we want to own provincial bonds or corporate bonds, I, I think it, it now becomes ripe for looking at uh, individual corporations and being able to suss out you know, where the dispersion is, uh, right. what's value, what's not value, et cetera. So we quite like what's in front of us because we thrive in that environment where there's more dispersion. Um, because, you know, we, we, we feel we have the tools to be able to identify uh, the opportunities that are in front of us. Um, so there are, we're, we're likely to be quite active, you know, ahead of us uh, now, and even more so than we were anticipating because the environment has, has changed. Um, I would say yeah. radically might be a strong word at this point because we, <laughs> we just don't know. I, how much is yet, but we certainly think, you know, we're leaning definitely more towards that. Well, it, it, I, I think, I mean, at the very, you know, very superficially, this, this event confirms, you, you know, it confirms what many folks, you know, what many investors, many people in the market were, were thinking all, you know, for quite some time since, you know, you start to see data rolling over, um, that, there was, you know, at, at the very minimum, things were going to be disinflationary. Um, but now you're now, I think what you're saying is that it's, it's deciding, you know, is it going to be disinflationary, mildly disinflationary or, or deeply yeah. disinflationary, or is it going to be even possibly deflationary? Or you right? could argue that, uh, if anything, because of the loosening of, uh, uh, financial conditions vis-a-vis -vis these uh, uh, emergency um, programs that they've enacted that it could spur um, activity because now you've given everybody a free reign to yeah. go out and do stuff, right? Uh, but as I said, I don't think that that's, that's the likely outcome. So I think what we'll, what we'll see is that you know, once we get past uh, this week's CPI in the U.S., that we will resume a a more accelerated trajectory in the decline in CPI going right. forward into year end. 
Now, I don't know where the landing zone, you know, where the destination is in terms, or rather, I should say, we know what the destination is. The Fed wants, the bank kind of wants 2%. But for this year, I don't know where that, where we land. I, I, my guess is somewhere between 3 and 4%. Um, but I could ma- certainly make the case that we, we could get to 2% now, given, you know, how much things might potentially contract from here. Um, so, you know, with that, that's the, the trajectory in which we see, at least for the remainder of this year, in terms of inflation headed. I do want to make this point, though, that our belief is that we are entering a new regime um, going forward, that we're exiting uh, zero interest rates, easy, mod- easy, um, easy policy or easy um, financial conditions, um, and we're likely to see higher inflation going forward, higher volatility going forward, and a higher terminal rate going forward. But it's not going to be immediate. I know like the next 10 or 20 years, we're certainly yeah. going to be looking at a very different dynamic relative to where we were in the past uh, 20 or 30 years. And, and uh, as I've said, I've indicated some of those characteristic features that we're looking at. So the bigger macro backdrop is towards this new regime that is we're, 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 we're going to be look, paying attention to. But the here and now, the immediate future, the next quarter or two, is going to look a little similar to what we had coming out just pre, pre-COVID um, or going into COVID. Um, and I, you know, the Fed has clearly indicated their willingness to do certain things that, quite frankly, we'd anticipated they wouldn't uh, embrace uh, as readily as they did today or over the weekend. Yeah. So, so would you call that inflation volatility where inflation, you know, like we've got, we've had this inflation spike now, the, the one that's come and gone and, uh, or looks, looks that way. Um, but then, uh, with the inflation volatility comes the need to also constantly manage or try and manage the yield curve, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the driver for inflation, we think, is going to be, we've gone from a period or regime of uh, abundance of... The terminal rate won't be be five and a half or six percent, right? It'll be a lower terminal rate over over time. Lower terminal rate over time. Uh, If we think of, the rule of thumb would be that if you think Inflation is going to be somewhere between two and three for the long run as opposed to two. Uh, so let's pick a number two and a half. Um, uh, so what should a real uh, Bank Canada rate be or real Fed funds rate? And so should that be an additional spread of 100 basis points? Historically, that's kind of the number has been. So you're looking at three, and a, you know, three to three and a half. That's kind of the, the terminal right. rate. Now, again, that is anchored around, you know, inflation being around uh, that zone. And we have to believe that central banks' credibility is at stake here. So they need to get that down. Um, but working against uh, that objective, because remember, the U.S. has two, a dual mandate of stable prices and full employment. Well, in in, in this case, if you're going to have somewhat higher inflation that you're trying to suppress, you're going to have to give something up on the other side, which is going to be lower growth, meaning that potentially the labor market may not, you may not achieve the, the second part of your mandate or be, be, be more difficult to do that. So what potentially could uh, keep inflation uh, higher than they're anticipated? Um, well, we're looking at, as I said, this new regime one characteristic feature of which uh, is becoming evident is this uh, fracturing of our global economy. So we've went from globalization as being kind of the dominant feature, which led to an abundance of supply, both in terms of labor and material, to one where the fracturing is now challenging that abundance of supply. Um, so we've we've seen some evidence of nearshoring, reshoring, or offshoring right. to uh, more hospitable countries. Um, that'll take some time to really uh, evolve. Um, but 
that's in play. And so with that uh, effect, cost of producing something is just going to be higher. Um, right. And then it'll be flowed through back, back to us. Exactly. Back and to consumers. So, yeah. And the consumer in the end would, will come back to its employer and say, look, I, I can't live on these kinds of wages. So something has to give here. Right. So this, this, this is not going to resolve itself in the next couple of years. I think it's going to, it's going to be quite a while before we, we come to sort of that happy state. And again, we don't know that happy state means inflation is at three or two and a half or whatever that number is. But in um, the meantime, it's inflation volatility. It's, it's correct. Yes. And what, 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 Aubrey, what do you think are the odds that the Fed, you know, overshoots? I mean, I think they've gone down dramatically, but uh, just with this week's activity, you know, this week's events, but what, are, what, you know, what are the odds that the Fed overshoots the, the, you know, the 2% target and, you know, we're, we're by overshooting, obviously we're back to, uh, you know, where we were the last decade. Decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know, you yeah. know, like given, given, <laughs> given the, the deglobalization, right? Uh, no, so yeah, it's uh, so strictly a probability question. What do you think right, are the chances right. that that happens? Yeah. So I think I would give that a small probability uh, that they could reverse the forces back um, to the levels that we saw during pre-COVID. Um, and when I say small probability, I don't mean it's insignificant. I just mean that I just don't see, given the other factors that we've just described yeah. in terms of the fracturing of global economies, um, competition now, you know, China, between China, Russia, and the Western economies, that to me suggests that, it, you know, it's just going to be very difficult. There's going to be more friction in movement of goods and 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 commerce. Um, for them to get, they can certainly get uh, overshoot inflation on the downside, but that would mean you're going into, at least from my perspective, a deep recession. And that means that the other part of your mandate of full employment, you're sacrificing that in order to get there. Politically, as you're going into an election year, I find that the Fed might, not that they will play around with their credibility, but will tread very carefully in terms of uh, looking like they're sinking one administration to the benefit of the other. Um, right. It politics does come into play. We have to acknowledge that when for the Fed, for sure, and, uh, for sure. they can right. they they want to stay above that fray. Um, and so, in a way, the, it, in a way, this week's events might serve that. that exactly. Yeah. 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 It buys them some time, um, uh, but I you know, it's still their only currency is credibility, and if they screw that up, um, they've they're going to lose in a big way that the market's just not going to believe what, what they say they'll do, they'll end up doing. And that just adds more volatility to markets uh, um, overall. And, and so, again, it goes back to my point that be prepared for more dispersion. Um, beta exposure is not the thing to have going forward. It was the thing to have when the Fed is saying, I got your back, don't worry. Yeah. You can go out and buy risk assets, and and uh, if if things look like they're gonna soften up, I'll be there uh, to assist you. Um, and that worked beautifully. Uh, but going forward from here, I think active management uh, is going to be critical um, to be able to, you know, meet your objectives but manage portfolios in a way that you know can mitigate some of these uh, things like you have had over the weekend. So, Aubrey, what's the way forward here, like for fixed income, for Canadian fixed income investors? What what is the um, what is the direction now? Given given everything that's changed, ballpark. Not not you don't. <laughs> if you don't have to, you know, you don't have to give away any trade secrets. Uh, but uh, right. Um, you need to pay attention now more so than you did in the past because. Uh, a, a bunch of um, there's there's a good and there's there are pluses and negatives here. Um, the 
largest, the pig in the Python, when I think about demographics, right, it's the baby boomers. That's kind of the bulge of, you know, the pig moving through the Python in terms of demographic yeah. profile. The, the, the youngest one of the baby boomers are now in retirement age. Um, so their focus is on income. And, yeah. you know, today, if you can get uh, a risk-free investment at 5%, uh, you know, you should be, you should be quite happy about that. Um, absolutely. Yeah. That was the big dilemma for the longest time. Exactly. Was, you know, you yeah, couldn't well, get even four, you know, you couldn't get your 4% out of, but now you, now we've got anyway, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, you, you've got 5% and you're, you're thinking this is great. Um, but the other side of the equation is you've got risk assets, um, that if you own overnight, or money market stuff, it's not going to provide that ballast to the portfolio that you need. Right. Um, so you, you have to now be very selective and be, so some of your assets definitely in terms of, um, how you think about a portfolio construction going forward, um, having that cash equivalent earning at 5%, but you need to think about the rest of the portfolio that fixed income, how does that provide diversification to the overall portfolio construction that you have and and having um that exposure is going to be critical to dampen the overall volatility we're beginning to see so over the past 30 years the there was a very strong positive correlation between uh, uh, across assets so fixed income and and equities move more or less in tandem with minor interruptions um that's not how, you know, it's supposed to work. We're supposed to use fixed income as a way to diversify our exposure right. uh, in the portfolio. And we're beginning, to, I, I think we're just beginning to see that uh, negative correlation start to play out now. And, and that's how I think we'll see. So again, getting back to your point about what's the opportunity set, it's really thinking about how do I, you know, how do I use fixed income in order to uh, you know, help mitigate the risk in the portfolio while at the same time will generate uh, an adequate return uh, going forward. So I think you'll, you'll do fine. You, you need to pay attention to the duration of uh, the, the the risks that you're taking um, from a fixed income perspective. Um, and to some extent, the market is helping you sort that out because as rates have risen, duration has gone from about eight and a half to seven and change. And so to the extent that we continue to see modest increases in interest rates, it'll recalibrate that. But you've got choices between short duration, uh, the mid part of the curve, or the universe as a way to uh, think about uh, getting that balance in your portfolio appropriate. So I think you covered, um, I think you've covered what really the big challenges are, which is that if you, if you like, for the last while, anyways, uh, you know, investors, advisors have been hugging the shorter end of the curve uh, because it just, you know, I mean, it, it made sense on so many fronts, um, given last year's volatility and and uh, de- uh, drawdown in the markets. Um, but now, of course, we see this opportunity set unfolding. And what what do you think is an appropriate like? If you've, I don't think anybody's out there with a hundred percent you know, of their fixed income sleeve sitting in short-term instruments. Um, but in case they are, but <laughs> just in case, just in case they are because of the duration risk that was there before, right. before this quarter, what, like, what would be, would, would you say, would you suggest, you know, like, that that you know, waiting into duration is the way to go, or yeah, that that would be the the right way of phrasing it. I think start to think about um, adding some of the duration risk to the portfolio. Um, the combination of capital gains and income that to me looks to be um, a high probability outcome uh, going forward. Um, and uh, again, I really want to emphasize the. Uh, dampening of volatility that that solution would provide to your overall portfolio um, is is something that is the added benefit uh, that you will get. Um, 
So waiting, I think is the right uh, approach. Um, a day like today might make waiting seems like, you know, yeah. um, an impossible a, choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You need to be there immediately, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it'll take some time for this to settle itself out. You know, we, we've got all these meetings uh, in the near term in March and May and June in the U.S. and in Canada. Yeah, and, and today, today's reaction was quite visceral. I mean, it's not exactly. necessarily that it's going to stick, you know, that the 10 year is going to stay at three and a half. It's, it's, you know, it's probably a good, there's, there's probably as much a likelihood that, that it will drift back up. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, we, we, equilibrium is, you know, we're trying to sort that out now and uh, it's going to be, the market, I think it will be very reactive to, we it'll be an asymmetric bias in the short term. Weak data will see a much bigger reaction than strong data. So even if the CPI is strong in a relative sense to expectations, um, it, it'll get a muted, more muted reaction than if it were weaker. It'll certainly see a bigger reaction because it'll assume the market will assume the Fed is now done, and you know players sailing ahead in terms of you know what the next turn in monetary policy is likely to be. Um, and not until we get past all of this kind of short-term gyration or volatility, where we sort of get a better sense of what the landscape looks like. Um, but as I said, I, you know, from my perspective, I think this event risk here has just added, has done some of the heavy lifting, will do some of the heavy lifting for, uh, the Fed and global central banks in general and sort of muting, uh, demand and getting, trying to get that better balance between supply and demand going forward. Notwithstanding that, I still have to emphasize, you know, the external risks that we face, i.e. Russia and Ukraine. Who knows? Yep. That's something that we have to keep monitoring. China um, aligning itself with um, uh, Russia. Um, how does that play out vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, et cetera? You know, so there are these event geopolitical risks that I think um uh, difficult to hedge. Let's put it that way, because you never know when, uh, what, what's the outcome is going to be. Um, but the sort of the undertow to, um, the economies are simply going to be that tightening of lending standards, tightening of financial conditions vis-a-vis -vis something like what has happened here, in addition to what the Fed and Bank Canada has been doing, is simply going to continue to reinforce this, the stronger undertow, um, to suppressing growth. So... start wading into longer duration fixed yeah. income again. I, I think, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And how does that happen? How is that happening within your mandates, within your portfolios that you manage? Well, we, we are, we're managing to very specific benchmarks. So short duration would be <clears throat> one to five year exposure of the universe. And we keep, um, our duration targets uh, in plus or minus uh, half a year. So we're not taking very large duration bets per se. What we're trying to do is build a portfolio that we think will outperform by making sector selection, security selection, and positioning along the curve uh, as where we right. spend all that risk budget. Similarly for the universe, you know, it's we're not making big duration bets on it. We think we can outperform by doing similar things, as I explained on the short direction profile for an investor looking at if I'm mostly in cash-like instruments and I'm terming out in duration, my tolerance for short duration or universe or the mid part of the curve is what I need to think about. So an advisor needs to contemplate, you know, where do they think they can, they can best land in order to, again, as I said, think about dampening the volatility in the portfolio and earn a reasonable or respectable income out of that. Excellent. I, 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 you know, I, I ask you because I don't think, I don't think advisors or investors actually want to do a lot of fixed income management because of the complexity. Uh, and then of yep. course, you know, trading individual bonds, but there's obviously, um, uh, you know, a multitude of solutions in the marketplace. Um, uh, but I, but I think it helps to know how you're doing it. Um, you know, your thought process around, around how to, you know, how to structure a portfolio along the yield curve. 
and you know making sure advisors understand that that you know that managed active solution is available to them uh is above all the most important thing for them to know absolutely and i think um just reemphasizing the point about um regime change passive served you well over the past 30 years but environment of higher vol as we expect more dispersion um active management um i think it's the right approach going forward from here you know i spent i spent 15 years as a retail advisor but it was only it was only after i left retail and i feel like i i i don't know that that's true for all advisors i don't want to you know i'm not painting the industry with that brush but I feel like I always had only a limited amount of time as an advisor to learn, you know, the true complexity and, and, and power of the bond market, uh, not only as, as a diversifier in portfolios, but, but obviously as, as sort of the ruling power in markets. So, I mean, it, uh, it's been, it's been great talking to you, Aubrey. I, 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 you know, I was really, I, I was looking forward to this conversation for, for all that, that it, it's been. I think you've pretty much answered, you know, the, the, the key questions, but I wanted to ask you in parting, you know, what are, what are some of your most, um, memorable experiences, um, or lessons learned from, from your career? Um, there are three that I'm going to highlight and, um, it always reverberates in me when something like this happens, uh, what happened on the weekend. Um, and I know, I mean, not in sort of the order of importance, um, but number one would never underestimate how quickly liquidity can dry up. Um, you may, you know, prior to Thursday, let's say you might've thought markets, oh, I can do anything I want. And then, you know, two days later, um, in our morning call today, um, it was highlighted that, um, the market you could show a bid but you could not find an offer or vice versa so it's almost like in a you could snap a finger and liquidity mm-hmm. could go away so you always have to when you're constructing a portfolio think about you know what's the liquidity environment um in terms of the assets that you put in the portfolio how how could they um survive uh, if you're a call for liquidity so case you know, this extends, you know, naturally to the way these banks were being managed because uh, the liquidity profile wasn't stress-tested enough, uh, in my mind, to ensure that they could, you know, handle yeah. any kind of dramatic drawdown in their deposits. So that's it. Um, number two is um, always pay attention to value. Like, don't deviate from that discipline, as Warren Buffett will say, you know, you're always looking to buy something 50 cents on the dollar. Like, don't overpay. Just be patient, right? So just right. keep assessing what, what the appropriate value of something is and stick to that. Um, and the third is uh, always be patient. You know, you're investing for the long term. Um, and you're going to be... So if, if you don't if you don't get the price that you're looking for... It'll come back to you at some point. So you just need to be very, very patient. I think if you stick to those three, or at least for me, I've stuck to those three kind of overarching principles. You know, don't remember liquidity is a driver uh, and and you can't underestimate how quickly that can disappear. Um, Always, you know, know what value, what you're paying for value and be patient. So that, that I think will serve you well. Thank you, Aubrey. That's, that's wonderful. That's a, <laughs> I, I was, as you were saying that, I, I was thinking, I wonder, you know, given last week's very passionate Fed meeting, um, you know, where they reiterated, you know, re- reiterated their drive um, with, you know, to c- continue raising rates, rates right. uh, you know, a day, a day, a day later, um, you know, this situation happens, right? But, um, and then given days like today where, where you could easily see where, you know, some investors might have, you know, that FOMO appetite back, 
or react in a, in a, in a way about, you know, fear of missing out. Um, you're absolutely right. Being patient is, uh, is definitely a worthwhile endeavor. Thank you so much. That's, uh, I've, I've, our, our conversation definitely exceeded my expectations. I, I, um, I want to thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. My pleasure, Pierre, and happy to be a part of this.